From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Deconing, Part 1. Overall, there was a 96% either stability or improvement in keratometry afterwards. First this. Attendance at the 2011 ASCRS Winter Update is super, and the beautiful setting at the Ritz-Carlton in Palm Beach complemented the excellent sessions. I learned pearls I'll take home to my own practice. Did you miss Winter Update this year? Registration is open for next year's meeting at Playa del Carmen, Mexico. Visit ASCRS.org to register for the annual meeting March 25th through 29th in San Diego, and next year's winter update in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. In ophthalmology, there are two kinds of pathologies. In column A are things we make better. Cataracts, strabismus, ptosis, infectious keratitis. In column B are progressive pathologies that we can only hope to slow. AMD, glaucoma, retinitis pigmentosa, keratoconus. Peter Hirsch, my guest today, is convinced that we can move keratoconus from column B to column A. He's been working on collagen cross-linking and has just published two papers on the subject. Our conversation will be presented in two podcasts. Today, we'll hear part one. Peter Hirsch, welcome to A Scene From Here. What is the pathophysiology of post-LASIK keratoectasia, and does it differ from primary keratoconus? You know, I don't know if we know that post-LASIK ectasia is a different disease entity or simply is a incipient or form fruce keratoconus, which was not discovered or was not clinically evident before the LASIK. I mean, clearly, if one takes off too much tissue, I mean, if you severely thin the cornea, you can cause an ectasia just by virtue of of removing too many lamellae and weakening the corneal strength. Uh, But I think nowadays that we know that we need to preserve a a certain amount of tissue that most uh, post-LASIK ectasias are indeed uncovering of a um, a pre-existing, though be it maybe not pre-discoverable tendency to have keratoconus. Peter, we're going to be talking about collagen cross-linking, but prior to collagen cross-linking, what therapies were available for post-LASIK keratoectasia? Well, first off, there was no therapy available to halt the the progression. Rather, people were treated uh, optically, obviously with with rigid or or, um, uh, other specialty contact lenses. They have been treated over the past several years with intacts with the goal of diminishing the topography uh, irregularity. Uh, some people have used conductive keratoplasty. We've done some work with CK uh, to uh, focally treat the irregular areas of the cornea to give one um, a, a better topography. And then finally, uh, uh, corneal transplant techniques, be it uh, full thickness. Or, or, or lamellar surgeries were the only things that were really uh, available to those patients. Peter, I don't know very much about collagen cross-linking. Can I have you give me a primer? Sure. The goal of collagen cross-linking is to strengthen and, and stiffen 
the the cornea. Um, you know, we all know what the lamellar corneal architecture uh, is, uh, and the uh, the cross-linking methodology uses a combination of riboflavin, vitamin B2, uh, and ultraviolet light, um, which which uh, for the most part acts as 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 an activator uh, of the riboflavin to cause uh, the formation. Of, of cross-links um, within and between uh, collagen molecules. Uh, specifically, the wavelength uses 365 nanometers, which is, is one of the peak absorption um, uh, wavelengths uh, of riboflavin. Uh, the riboflavin is then activated from reactive oxygen species or, or free radicals, which then interact uh, with the collagen uh, people think in order to form uh, covalent lysine bonds. So what you're in effect doing, like when, I, when I'm discussing this with patients, I'm telling them we're trying to strengthen and to stiffen the cornea and by making these additional bonds, it is analogous to putting additional wires on a suspension bridge to stiffen the bridge. By stiffening the the cornea. You're increasing Young's modulus, and a lot of this work has been done by Teo Seiler and Waldensack and, and, and his group in uh, in Dresden and, and in Zurich. You're increasing Young's modulus by about 400%. So you're making the cornea stiffer. By making the cornea stiffer, our goal is to decrease the progression of, of keratoconus and corneal ectasia. Peter, can I get you to walk me through a collagen cross-linking procedure? Yes. Uh, the typical technique begins with epithelial removal. Uh, the, the, the junctions between the epithelium uh, prevent uh, the good absorption of the riboflavin uh, in, into the cornea. So the epithelium is removed for about a 9 millimeter uh, diameter. The cornea is then pre-treated with riboflavin, 0.1% drops, and we give one drop every two minutes uh, for 30 minutes, and the patient keeps their eye closed in between the drops. So this allows for uh, complete absorption of the riboflavin throughout the corneal stroma. Uh, we then bring the patient to the slit lamp, and we assure ourselves that there is riboflavin uptake uh, throughout the cornea and uh, a flare in the anterior chamber as well. The purpose of the riboflavin is twofold. Number one, it is the creator of the reactive oxygen species that cause the cross-linking uh, to occur. Number two, it acts to absorb the ultraviolet light to attenuate its effect as it approaches the endothelium and intraocular structure. So it actually acts to protect the endothelium from ultraviolet damage and protects the lens and the, um, and the retina as well by attenuating the power of the ultraviolet and therefore diminishing any ill effects that the ultraviolet might have on the intraocular structures. When we are done at the slit lamp, we, we go back and we measure corneal pachymetry. The cornea needs to be 400 microns or thicker before you proceed with the ultraviolet. And the reason for that is, much as we were just talking about with the absorption of the ultraviolet, there needs to be enough absorption of the ultraviolet to attenuate its power before it reaches the endothelium. You need to get below a critical power to avoid endothelial damage. 
and it's been suggested that the cornea needs to be 400 microns or thicker uh, to reach that safe level. So if we are greater than 400 microns, we then proceed. If we're less than 400 microns, we use a hypotonic riboflavin solution, which we administer every 10 seconds for two-minute sessions. After each two-minute session, we measure the corneal thickness and see that the cornea is swelling up to the 400 micron limit that then allows us uh, to begin. Once we reach that, the patient will look up at a, a focused uh, ultraviolet, again, at 365 nanometers and 3 milliwatts per centimeter squared, and uh, that will be administered for 30 minutes. At the end of the procedure, we'll give a topical corticosteroid and a topical antibiotic and a, and a bandage soft contact lens, and that's the procedure. Does the presence of reactive oxygen species, of free radicals, engender inflammation? Well, it, it engenders a keratocyte dropout, we know, uh, over the anterior 200 microns or, or so. Uh, and there is a distinct healing pattern after the treatment uh, that we can monitor uh, at, at the slit lab. And what we see afterwards is a decrease in corneal thickness uh, that is found at one in three months and then thickens thereafter towards baseline. And we see a corneal haze, a typical corneal haze that maximizes at one month, plateaus at three months, and diminishes towards baseline thereafter. So clearly there is a wound healing effect of the treatment uh, 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 itself, and I imagine this will incorporate some inflammatory um, uh, elements as well, but we are uh, clearly doing something at the molecular and, and, and cellular uh, level that is I I evoking a, um, a fairly typical uh, wound healing response that, that we see afterwards. Peter, you just had two great papers published on the natural history of corneal haze after collagen cross-linking and on one-year results of collagen cross-linking for ectasia. Can I get you to describe the designs of these two studies? Sure thing. Well, uh, um, first of all, let's just look at the basic outcomes of cross-linking. This uh, was a study uh, which had two arms. Uh, one arm was keratoconus and the other arm was a corneal ectasia uh, uh, after LASIK. And um, you know, our work was our single center work within a multi-center uh, study. Uh, patients were randomized uh, to uh, collagen cross-linking, as we just described, or a control group that received only riboflavin drops. So they had no epithelial removal. They had no ultraviolet. They simply had riboflavin drops. That group could then cross over to the actual treatment in three months. So those patients generally have three-month follow-up. We also compared eyes to an untreated fellow eye uh, control group. The paper that we published um, uh, presented one-year basic uh, clinical results on, on 71 eyes, where we looked at the principal outcomes of keratometry, in particular the maximum keratometry found on a pentacam topography map, uh, uncorrected uh, visual acuity, 
as well as, uh, as best corrected uh, visual acuity. The principal outcome being, are we stabilizing and decreasing the cone in either keratoconus or corneal ectasia? Yeah, so, so looking at the, the salient results, if we look at a maximum uh, keratometry, we found that there was a decrease in general in, uh, in, in Kmax, uh, as, as we call it, uh, of 1.6 diopters. So on average, patients' cones improved by 1.6 diopters. If we look just at the keratoconus cohort, they improved by two diopters over the year. If we look at the ectasia cohort, they improved by one uh, diopter uh, over the year. If you stratify that to individual uh, patients, we found that 30% of patients actually flattened by two diopters or more, so they had a fairly significant clinical effect. Um, 3% or three patients um, uh, that we had uh, continued to progress more than they, they uh, uh, actually uh, steepened uh, by two diopters, and the rest remained stable. So overall, there was a 96% uh, either stability or improvement in keratometry uh, afterwards. If we went on to look at uh, best corrected uh, vision, we found over the year that in general patients improved uh, about one line. Uh, the cohort was 2045 on average to start, and they were 2034 um, afterwards. And again, if we stratify this to say, how is an individual patient uh, going uh, to, to do? Uh, we found that most remain stable. 22% uh, gained uh, two lines or more of spectacle uh, corrected uh, vision. And I believe it was one patient lost two lines of, of spectacle corrected uh, vision. Uh, I believe it was from 2080 uh, to um, uh, 2125. Uh, though I'm not uh, absolutely certain, there was no um, clear-cut clinical uh, clinical cause for that. If we looked at uncorrected uh, visual acuity, we found uh, an improvement in all groups, and on average, they improved from an average of 2137 uh, to 2117 uh, afterwards. So. The, the general findings were that uh, patients stabilized their cones. Most of them did. Uh, some improved. Most stabilized their vision. Uh, 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 some improved in the safety uh, outcomes um, appeared to be quite acceptable. Uh, curiously, we didn't find any uh, real change in refraction, uh, though, though patients improved by about a diopter or so in refraction, that wasn't statistically significant. There was no change in manifest astigmatism. There was no change in atopic graphic astigmatism. Uh, and there was no clear-cut change in uh, vectorally analyzed, surgically induced astigmatism. Just to follow on that same point, if I'm reading the paper right, the treatment group differed little from the control group at three months, but was significantly better than controls at one year. Correct. Is the delay in difference between the two groups an indication that the treatment group stabilized while the control group took a year to progress to the point that the difference between the two reached statistical significance? No, actually, the, 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 the reason for this is, is the healing tempo after the cross-linking. 
in that patients tend in the healing to actually get a little bit worse at month one. Uh, they don't really change an awful lot. They, they obtain baseline where they were on most of the outcomes indicators uh, between one and three months, and they improve thereafter. So the difference that we're seeing between treatment and control is actually mostly an effect of improvement in the treated patients rather than um, uh, instability or progression in the, um, in the control patients. We'll end today's podcast here and pick up at this point next time. Peter Hirsch is Director, Cornea and Laser Eye Institute Hirsch Vision Group and Professor of Clinical Ophthalmology and Chief of Cornea and Refractive Surgery at UMDNJ New Jersey Medical School. He's also visiting research collaborator at Princeton University. He and I discussed the findings of two papers, Natural History of Corneal Haze After Collagen Crosslinking for Keratoconus and Corneal Ectasia, Schlemflug and Biomicroscopic Analysis, which appeared in the December 2010 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, and Corneal Collagen Crosslinking for Keratoconus and Corneal Ectasia, One-Year Results, which appeared in the January 2011 issue of that same journal. Ask questions of Dr. Hirsch or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.